Hi, I'm Linda Calabresi. I'm a GP and the medical editor of HealthEd. Welcome to our unique podcast series now available direct to your device. The series features some of Australia's leading clinical experts talking on topics that are both practical and important to Australian GPs. Hi, my name is Professor Andrew Sindoni. I'm the director of the Heart Fair Unit at Concord Hospital and head of the Department of Cardiology at Ride Hospital, both in Sydney. I'm going to be talking to you today about the four pillars of management of heart failure. Our management of heart failure has really evolved in the last few years, so we now have four key medications which have been shown to improve prognosis and change outcomes in people with chronic heart failure. I'm going to be focusing today on heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. These are my disclosures. Why am I talking to you about heart failure? Because it's a very serious condition. It has a prognosis worse than most cancers, and people with heart failure have very strong symptoms that impair their quality of life. They have a high recurrence rate of ending up back in hospital, and they have a survival worse than most cancers. It's an expensive condition, it's common, makes you feel bad, and it kills you. And if you can see here, the survival after five years, about 50% of people with heart failure will have not survived. We can break it up according to the New York Heart Association functional classification. So if you have mild symptoms, you've got a five to 10% one year mortality. Uh, moderate symptoms, a 10 to 20% one year mortality. If you have shortness of breath at rest, you have about a 50, maybe 30% chance of being dead in one year. So we've got to do better than we've been doing so far. When we wrote the Australian Guidelines for Management of Heart Failure, we focused on trying to improve these outcomes by using treatment which has been shown to be a benefit. We're updating those this year. But we broke it up into people who were congested or people who were euvolemic. Those who were congested, we said an ACE inhibitor or an angiotensin receptor blocker, and then add on a mineralocorticoid antagonist like spironolactone or a plerinone. And then once the patient was euvolemic, add on a beta blocker. If a patient was already euvolemic, the recommendation was to use an ACE inhibitor or an ARB only if they're intolerant, and then a heart failure beta blocker from the get-go. So an ACE inhibitor and a beta blocker from the start, add on spironolactone or plerinone, the MRA, and then use a little bit of this, a little bit of that, be a master chef, don't maximize one drug, and try and get them stable. After three to six months, repeat the echocardiogram, and if the ejection fraction remains below 40% and the patient is still symptomatic, then the recommendation was to change the ACE inhibitor or the ARB over to an ARNI, an angiotensin receptor neprilase inhibitor, like uh, Sucubitril valsartan or Entresto. And then, if the patient was still symptomatic, think about me, humble suburban cardiologist. Think about referring to your local cardiologist for other treatments, including a defibrillator to reduce sudden death, or cardiac resynchronization device, a bioventricular device in people with left bundle branch block, injection fraction less than 35% to improve ventricular function. We think about digoxin, nitrase plus hydralazine, ifabridine if you're tachycardic with a heart rate more than 77 in sinus rhythm, um, and maybe other um, therapies for more advanced heart failure. Everyone with heart failure should have multidisciplinary care. Now what I haven't mentioned is diuretics, because diuretics do not improve survival in chronic heart failure. They make patients feel better, they make the doctors feel better, but they do not improve survival. They turn on the renin angiotensin system, they turn on the sympathetic nervous system, and they turn on aldosterone production, which are all bad things. Low sodium, low potassium, low magnesium, worsening kidney function. So diuretics should be used sparingly just to manage congestion. So really now, in 2022, these are our four pillars. We've moved from 2013, we had an ACE and an ARB, a beta blocker, and spironolactone. We've moved now to the four pillars, which is the neprilase inhibitor, like Entresto, a beta blocker, an MRA like spironolactone, and 
and SGL-T2 inhibitor. I'm going to show you the data in a little while about the SGL-T2 inhibitors because this really has been an additional weapon in our war against heart failure. But let's go through the data regarding our, our treatments. Here's the data for ACE inhibitors. You can see that in the top left-hand corner in people with um, moderate heart failure, there are improvements. Uh, and then if you move to the right, in advanced heart failure in the consensus trial, uh, further improvements. And in asymptomatic left ventricular dysfunction improvements. So overall, there's about a 20% risk reduction in that cohort of patients with an ACE inhibitor versus placebo. The trials with angiotensin receptor blockers are important, but not as significant as with an ACE inhibitor. And in some cases, they do not improve survival significantly. So an ACE inhibitor is preferred to an ARB and an ARB is only if a patient has a cough, but really these days, we'd much rather have the patient on the succubitrol valsartan. And you can see here the data here. Overall, there's about a 13% reduction in mortality, but um, you can see the Elite 2 trial in the bottom right-hand corner, which compared captopril to an ARB lysartan, there was actually a trend towards the benefit of the ACE inhibitor. If they'd gone for another three months, the ACE inhibitor would have been superior. So um, yes, they do improve symptoms and reduce hospitalization, um, but they do not improve survival significantly in these trials. We love beta blockers because they lead to about a 34, 35% reduction in mortality um, compared to placebo, but on top of an ACE inhibitor. So beta blockers are really one of our cornerstones of therapy. And the mineral corticoid receptor antagonists like um, spironolactone in the left in the RAILS trial, the randomized aldactane life expectancy study, 30% reduction in mortality. The Ephesus trial, which we did with a 15% reduction in mortality post-infarct. And the Emphasis trial, mild to moderate heart failure on top of an acidotin and beta blocker in these trials um, further benefits. 22% reduction in death uh, with a spironolactone on the left or a plerinone on the right. But we now have uh, drugs which work a bit better, like the angiotensin receptor neprolyse inhibitors, Entresto, known to its friends. So this is a drug which has two medications built into the same salt. If we just concentrate on the right, it's our traditional uh, angiotensin receptor blocker. In this case, it was valsartan in this medication. And uh, we know that valsartan uh, <coughs> inhibits the effects of vasoconstriction, like the high blood pressure and sympathetic tone and production of aldosterone, fibrosis, and hypertrophy. But on the left is a unique property of this drug called sucubitril. Sucubitril reduces the degradation of the natriuretic peptides and a whole lot of other um, uh, hormones and peptides which are vasodilatory and cause um, uh, fluid, fluid loss, naturesis. I'm not going to say diuresis because naturesis is losing salt and then water follows. A diuresis is salt and water. There's also things called aquaretics where you just lose plain water. Um, so in this case, it's this uh, sucubitral moiety uh, causes vasodilatation, reduction in sympathetic tone, reduction in aldosterone, uh, reduces fibrosis, reduces hypertrophy, and you get a naturesis and a diuresis. So it's a dual benefit in this medication. You're going to say to me, why didn't you combine it with an ACE inhibitor? We did that in 2002 in a study called the Overture trial using a drug called omipatrolate, which combined an ACE inhibitor with a nebulized inhibitor. And unfortunately, it was angioedema. Faces blew up and um, it wasn't significant uh, because it was only given once a day. You learn from your mistakes. We now know you have to give these drugs BD and combining with an ARB is, is a better idea. Why do we have to combine it with an ARB? Because neprilysin also reduces the degradation of angiotensin II. And if we didn't use an ARB, um, then angiotensin II levels would go up and that would overwhelm any potential benefit. So that's the reason we do that. And this is the data. The Paradigm trial, which compared enalapril 
versus uh, Entresto. Now remember, enalapril is our first line agent and ACE inhibitor. So this is not compared to placebo. This is against our first line agent. There was a 20% reduction in cardiovascular mortality, heart failure, hospitalization. More zeros in that p-value than I can count. So cardiovascular mortality and heart failure, hospitalization, a 20% reduction. But overall mortality, there was a 16% reduction in mortality. So if you like, this is a doubling of the benefits, like giving an ACE inhibitor on top of an ACE inhibitor. So I showed you a minute ago about a 13% reduction in mortality with ARBs, about an 18% reduction in mortality, 15% reduction in mortality with ACE inhibitors, but uh, Sucubitril Valsartan uh, led to another 16% reduction in mortality. It's like an ACE inhibitor on top of an ACE inhibitor. Now, how do we use these drugs? The first thing is their only side effect compared to ACE inhibitors that was in excess is hypotension. Otherwise, they're very safe drugs. Um, comparable cough and angioedema to ACE inhibitors. But you start low and go slow. You don't get any prizes of making someone uh, fall over with hypotension and you don't get any prizes if they stop the medication. There's only one drug in the class, so if the patient doesn't tolerate and says, I won't take that again, you've been burnt. So start low, go slow. And uh, it's indicated in Australia for patients with left ventricular ejection fraction below 40%. Now there was a study called the Paragon trial which looked at people with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. They said preserved, but they took people ejection fraction more than 40%. And there was a strong signal for benefit in the subgroup analysis, all the way up to an ejection fraction of 57%. But in Australia, it's still only indicated for ejection fraction uh, less than 40%. If the blood pressure is low, maybe um, stop or reduce the vasodilators to buy some blood pressure. So your nitrates, hydralazine, um, maybe stop those. And also, uh, um, Maybe if they're on hydrochlorothiazide, you can stop that. We don't want them to dehydrate because there is some naturesis involved. And in heart failure, do not use calcium channel blockers. In our heart failure clinic, that's a sackable offence. I'll sack you because these calcium channel blockers really increase mortality in patients with heart failure. And unless they're really overloaded, maybe try reducing the diuretics because you do get this naturesis and they drop their blood pressure a little bit. Maybe if the blood pressure is relatively low, you might have to uh, increase the nighttime dose first before you increase the, the morning dose and go up stepwise. But don't give them once a day, as I said, because this, um, these drugs really only last 12 hours. So there's some of the tricks. I aim in my patients with heart failure for a blood pressure about 105 systolic and a pulse about 55 per minute. Slow and low. So you get more time to fill the heart. It uses up um, less energy every time it beats, increased uh, left ventricular and diastolic volume, maximize the stroke volume. And if you get that afterload reduction by lowering their blood pressure, there's less resistance to cardiac contraction and you can allow the heart to empty blood more effectively. So that's our ARNIs. Now the next thing that came along were the SGLT2 inhibitors. And this is fairly recent data, as you know. So this is all discovered accidentally. In 2015, the EMPA-REG outcome trial, the Empaglifosin Regulatory Outcome Trial. Now remember, this was only done just so that they didn't show they killed people, as had been shown with um, uh, rosiglitazone uh, in 2007. So this trial just tried not to show they didn't kill people with diabetes, and accidentally, on purpose, they got a really improvement, big improvement. They showed um, about a 38% reduction in cardiovascular mortality, 32% reduction in overall mortality, and a 35% reduction in heart failure hospitalization. So they scratched their head and said, wow, this is something. They looked at the, the CLEAR trial with um, uh, dapaglifosin, the CANVAS trial with canaglifosin, and overall, you can see there's the order of um, a heart failure hospitalization, around, as I said, 35, 33% reduction in those trials with those drugs. So it seems to be, I hate to use this word, a class effect. 
So we said, why don't you do a trial of patients with just with uh, heart failure and no diabetes? And this is what they did. This is DAPA-HF. The DAPA-HF trial used dapaglifosin in patients with heart failure. Just to prove the point, 40% of patients had diabetes, 60% had no diabetes, and uh, these people had an ejection fraction below 40%. And you can see there, there was that uh, impressive uh, cardiovascular mortality heart failure hospitalization, a 26% reduction. And um, that you only need to treat 21 patients for dapaglifosin on top of standard therapy, which included uh, beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, ARBs or ARNIs, and uh, spironolactone to get that benefit. Only 21 patients. But the interesting thing was they looked at diabetic patients versus the non-diabetic patients. No heterogeneity. That p-value for interaction was 0.83, not significant. So SGLT2 inhibitors are not diabetic drugs. Don't kid yourself. They're mine. They're cardiovascular drugs that have a side effect of lowering glucose, okay? So that's how they work. And they cause a naturesis, they uh, lower the blood pressure, they lower the heart rate, they reduce sympathetic tone, improve the ability to produce energy via superfuels like the ketones, you know, the acetoacetate and beta-hydroxybutyrate. And they also um, have a lot of other downstream benefits, reduce weight, reduce pericardial fat, and therefore inflammation in the heart. So whether you're diabetic or not, if you have an ejection fraction less than, uh, 30, uh, less than 40%, on top of standard therapy, you can see there uh, cardiovascular death or heart failure hospitalization, the order of 25-27% uh, reduction. So then they did a meta-analysis of the Emperor-Reduce trial, which used empagliflozin and DAPRHF, which used dapagliflozin. And you can see cardiovascular death or heart failure hospitalization um, almost entirely overlap, and overall about a 26% reduction in that endpoint in patients with heart failure. Overall mortality, all-cause death, it's hard to fudge that one. Again, you can see there that there is a 13% um, reduction in death with SGL inhibitors on top of standard therapy. So this is another weapon now in our war against heart failure. This is in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, uh, less than 40%. How do we do it? They should be now considered in all patients with heart failure, particularly if they have diabetes. Um, I'd probably stop or reduce the diuretics depending on how fluid overloaded they are because they will get um, that naturesis that I talked about as well as an osmotic diuresis. The EGFR will fall a little, just wait it out, usually about 13%. By six weeks it starts to come up again. So um, just be brave, uh, hold good. And uh, the effect on glucose control seems to diminish once your EGFR falls below 45, but the cardiovascular benefit doesn't. You can go all the way down to an EGFR of 30 and there's still ongoing benefits. So um, SGLT2 inhibitors are very important in these patients and, and really quite well tolerated. If you've got a diabetic patient um, and their sugar control is pretty good and they're on a sulfonylurea, let's stop the sulfonylurea uh, because you don't want hypos, number one. And also sulfonylureas uh, do cause weight gain and they cause an increase in cardiovascular mortality uh, in patients with type 2 diabetes with hazard ratio 1.22. So um, you can get rid of that. If they're on a DPP-4 inhibitor and their blood glucose control is good, um, probably burn the DPP-4 inhibitor because they're very good placebos. They do nothing. They lower blood glucose, so they will help microvascular disease like the eyes, um, the kidneys, and peripheral neuropathy. They do not improve survival, except for saxagliptin, which increases mortality and heart failure hospitalization. So um, DPP-4 inhibitors, if you're going to burn something, that might be one to burn as well. And you don't use SGL inhibitors in type 1 diabetes because of the risk of euglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis. But I've talked about our four pillars now. Remember the ACE inhibitors, ARBs or ARNIs, beta blockers, mineralic antagonists like spironolactone or pleuronone, and the SGL inhibitors. But what if we're still not winning? What do we do now? 
So as I said earlier, I aim for a systolic blood pressure about 105, pulse about 55 per minute. If they're on furosemide and they're still not re responding, don't change them to another lip diuretic like uh, bumetanide or ethacrinic acid. That's just an expensive way of trying to do things. I try and maximise the uh, furosemide dosage, about 160 milligrams morning and lunch. And then if they're still not winning, they might have a bowel edema, so they're not absorbing their oral medications. Give it IV. Uh, maybe you have to do that intermittently once a week or maybe more. The spironolactone we're using, but use lower doses if the EGFR starts to fall. Reduce the frequency. So if EGFR is less than 40, I might go uh, three times a week, or if it's less than 20, I might go once a week. Adding on hydrochlorothiazide is quite useful in maximising the, um, the diuresis. If they're still fluid overloaded and their bicarb is more than 25, um, I might use acetazolamide, 250 milligrams, again, one to three times a week. Um, it's quite good for people who get metabolic alkalosis in response to furosemide. So this is what I call the sequential nephron block theory. And you can see here where all our medications work, and they give complementary benefits. Furizomide working on the ascending limb of group of Henle, spironolactone on the C cells in the distal convoluted tubule, hydrochlorothiazide, both in the distal and proximal convoluted tubule, acetazolamide in the SGLT2 inhibitors in the proximal convoluted tubule, and a drug called Tolvactan works in the um, collecting duct, and that's used for people with hyponatremia and heart failure. And that's that aquaritic I talked to you about, which makes you pass free water. Digoxin, a malign drug, it's quite a good drug for improving symptoms. It uh, makes people feel better, reduces hospitalisation, but no improvement in survival. Useful in atrial fibrillation as well, and symptomatic control. Hydralazine and nitrates, again, have fallen off the radar. They Compared to placebo, they did lead to a, a benefit uh, back in 1987 in the Veterans Heart Failure Trial number 1, 36% reduction in events. Um, and that trial also had Prazosin, Minipress, direct vasodilator, alpha blocker, didn't work. But the Veterans Heart Failure Trial number 2 showed that ACE inhibitors were a lot better, about a 28% reduction. So that's why they fell off the radio. But they're still quite useful um, if you've got uh, pulmonary hypertension, myocardial ischemia, or they're still resistant. So. This is um, a way of looking at them. This is a terrible thing to do, comparing apples and oranges. Different sorts of drugs in different classes. You can see across the board there about a 13% reduction in mortality with angiotensin receptor blockers, 16% reduction with ACE inhibitors, 34% reduction with beta blockers, 17% reduction with uh, spironolactone, a 28% reduction compared to placebo in a putative analysis with Entresto, um, the angiotensin receptor mobilized inhibitor, and about a 17% reduction with SGLT2 inhibitors. So I showed you this earlier, I'm going to show you again. The evolving foundational therapy, now it's a necrolysis inhibitor, a beta blocker, spironolactone, and an SGLT2 inhibitor. This is our treatment in 2022. So if we compare 2013 to 2022, what can we do? We can show um, the old-fashioned therapy on the right, the comprehensive therapy on the left, Big numbers, you know, a 60% reduction in cardiovascular death or heart failure hospitalization, about a 45% uh, reduction in cardiovascular death, heart failure hospitalization, about a 55% reduction, all-cause mortality, again, about a 45% reduction, death, all-cause death. So this is really important. That's looking at curves vertically. What if we go horizontal, look at our curves horizontally? What we can see, if you have someone with heart failure who's diagnosed at age 55, years younger than me, and uh, we compare older fashion therapy with an ACE and a beta blocker versus comprehensive therapy with uh, a mineralocorrhoid antagonist, the ARNI, the beta blocker, and the SGL2 inhibitor, you can buy an extra 6.3 years of survival. Oncologists get very excited about six months or 12 months, so this is fantastic. 6.3 year improvement of survival with an ARNI, a beta blocker, spironolactone, and an SGL2 inhibitor versus a beta blocker and an ACE inhibitor. So how can we summarize what we just said? ACE inhibitors for everybody with heart failure reduced ejection fraction. 
beta blockers, again, for everyone, on top of an ACE inhibitor. Spironolactone is an additional medication, particularly if you've got severe symptoms. The irony to replace the ACE inhibitor or the ARB, if your ejection fraction is less than 40%, you remain symptomatic, particularly after three months. SG Elton inhibitor for everyone, particularly patients with um, diabetes or persistent congestion. Ivabradine, which is a drug which just slows the heart down if your heart rate is more than 77 beats a minute and sinus rhythm. Digoxin for persistent symptoms, not for survival. Diuretics for congestion, but only for congestion. And the iron infusion if people are iron deficient. If you use that sort of comprehensive therapy, you can lead to big improvements to survival in patients with heart failure and hopefully get them to take a detour in their cardiovascular journey. Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us. We hope you are enjoying this series and will recommend it to your friends and colleagues. I'm Linda Calabresi, and on behalf of the team here at HealthEd, I look forward to joining you soon for our next podcast. If you enjoyed this audio segment, you can find out more about our free webcast lectures, which can be accessed from any device on our website at healthed.com.au. The podcasts published on this page are for medical professionals only. The content is not a substitute for medical advice. If you have a health issue, you should seek the advice of a suitable qualified health professional.